If you have your Bible today, please turn in it to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 20 is where we will be if you don't have a Bible for yourself. And please take one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and it should be on page 929 in that Bible. And uh, if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible for yourself at all, then please take that one with you. We want you to have one. It's our gift to you. Let's read together from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I had printed in the bulletin last week that we were going to be in this scripture this week. I didn't announce that we were going to be a week away from Romans, but put it there, put it in the newsletter, and had one church member come to me and say, Pastor, this, this scripture that you're preaching next week says, I'm going, you're going away and you're never going to see our face again. It sure sounds like you're leaving. And uh, I hate to have gotten anybody's hopes up, but that's not why I'm preaching this scripture today. The reason I'm preaching this scripture today is because of the meeting we're having after church and talking through eldership and just feeling, hey, we need to talk about what the Bible says about this and which passage have I not preached on. And now I have actually preached on this. I preached a three-sermon series on this passage when we were in uh, the book of Acts called it The Elders of the Church, Part 1, 2, and 3. That was back in 2014. And uh, I went back and re-listened to those because I don't remember what I said, which means you don't remember what I said. And in fact, an awful lot of you weren't here then. There's a pastor who told me not long ago that you can, you can kind of expect that in any given church, every 10 years or so, it's pretty much a, a new congregation. And, uh, and so we need to hear this together. And it's kind of a rough overview, and I'm not going to do an extremely thorough exegesis, because that's a lot of verses I just read you. But what we want to see today is what does this passage have to say about the way that God would have a church to be led, and and to be led by its shepherds, or its overseers, its leaders, its elders, as they're called in this passage. And so there are quite a few instructions that are given for us here. The Bible actually has a model that it lays out for church leadership. By his grace, Even though lots and lots of different models have been invented, uh, God has continued to carry his church forward. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it. Christ has built his church, and we're grateful for that. And yet at the same time, even though there are so many man-made models out there, we want to say, what does the Bible actually say? What are the commands of the New Testament? What are the examples of the New Testament? 
where we can say we want not just our faith, but also our practice to be conformed to what God has laid out for us in the scriptures. Now, if you say to yourself, well, maybe this doesn't really apply to me personally because it's just one of those things about how the church is going to get run. Well, do you know what God has decided is the way that you personally will be shepherded in your soul? It's through human beings. Now, I have to be clear about this. Jesus is the great shepherd. And no human being is going to have any effectiveness whatsoever in shepherding your soul if Christ is not your shepherd first. If you're not among his sheep, hearing the voice of the good shepherd and following him, then what difference would it ever make what kind of pastor you have? But at the same time, for his sheep, those who hear his voice and follow him, he has appointed a way for actual human beings to be in your life. And to be not just directing the organization that is the church, which is a necessary thing, but also shepherding your souls. And God has laid out for us how he wants that to happen. And we see here in this passage that it is through what are called elders, or sometimes called pastors, sometimes called overseers. So this matters deeply to us. You need to have Jesus as the shepherd of your soul, first of all. You need to come to him. You need to believe in him. You need to repent. You need to embrace his grace. You need to receive the incredible love that he would have for you as a sheep. And you also need to have people in your life who have been given a position to be able to say, hey, I need need to show you some things here. So let's look at this together, starting in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. If you're following along on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline there. And the first thing it says is, a church should have elders. Verse 17. So as we, as we come to this verse, it says, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus. Just to know where we are in the context of the book of Acts, this is as, as Paul is returning from a missionary journey, he is, uh, he, he's trying to get to Jerusalem quickly because he wants to be there in time uh, to, to celebrate this festival. He um, he has made a, um, a, a particular vow. Um, he's going to, all kinds of stuff, but he's in a hurry. We'll just say that. He's in a hurry on this ship voyage to get back to Jerusalem, and he stops in a town called Miletus. And essentially, he, he is saying, this is close to Ephesus. I would love to go and visit the church in Ephesus in person, but if I did that, I would not have time to get to Jerusalem by the time I want to get there. So what he does is he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and to meet with him at this town called Miletus. Now, one of the things that you see here, this is, this is just kind of built into this verse, is there is a single church at Ephesus. And that single church has multiple elders. He sent to, the, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. What are we talking about when we talk about an elder? Well, we're talking about one of the two offices that the Bible sets up for how God wants his church to be overseen and run. Those two offices, you could call them elder and deacon. There's other words for elder that are in the scripture as well. The word elder is used interchangeably with the word pastor in the New Testament. It's also used interchangeably with the word overseer, which is translated bishop in the King James Bible. There's also a couple of other words that are sprinkled around, like leader, things like that. But if you want to see, well, is this just talking about one thing? You can see here in verse 17, he sent for the elders. And then if you look all the way down to verse 28, you'll see, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Uh, in which he has made you overseers. you hear that? The fact that they're elders means that they are overseers or bishops. And then to care for, and the word there is actually to shepherd or to pastor the church of God. And so these terms are all three used interchangeably. They're also used interchangeably, all three terms together in 1 Peter 5 to describe this is one of the offices of the church, is elder slash pastor slash overseer. The other office of the church is called deacon, which really just means servant. And we all ought to be servants of the church, but that was set out as a particular office starting from Acts 6, 
where the, the elders, who were the 12 apostles of the church in Jerusalem at that time, they needed help making sure that the widows were cared for. And, and so they asked the congregation to call out seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, who, um, who, who they could set apart to this office of deacon to coordinate those kinds of, you might call them secular aspects of the church ministry, while the elders could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so you see this is two offices that are set up. There's, there's various other places that you can see that as well. One of the most clear is in Titus chapter, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, where there are two offices listed and two sets of qualifications, not more, not less. And in fact, our own uh, statement of faith says this. Uh, the very statement of faith that we hold today that was first adopted by this church in the 1850s by the founders of the church, it, it states very clearly that there are only two offices of the church, and that's elder and deacon, or as it says there, bishops or pastors and deacons. And so we, we want to follow what God says about that, to have only two offices. That doesn't mean nobody else should serve. That doesn't mean that we don't want anybody who's currently serving to stop serving in the ways that they're serving, but we want to be able to clarify, hey, there are only two offices of the church. Even our statement of faith, we've said that. And so let's do that. That's one of the things we're trying to do in these meetings moving ahead. One of the other things that you see here, though, is that there's not just two offices, but that there should be multiple elders in each church. You see, he sent for the elders of the church at Ephesus. You see this in other places throughout the New Testament as well. Philippians 1.1, where Paul says that he's writing to the church at Philippi, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's the church members, with the overseers and deacons. You hear that? He says, here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to all the saints. And I want to especially say, hello, elders, overseers, and hello, deacons. That's the way that he starts the church, the letter to the church in Philippi. James 5.14 talks about one of the ways that this is beneficial to your soul and to your life and your practical sufferings as a Christian. James 5.14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Or Titus 1.5, where Paul says to Titus, who is uh, in Crete, a disciple, a pastor there in Crete, which is a small island with little villages all around, he gives, gives Titus the instructions, put what remains in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He says, in all of those little churches, not just the big ones, but all in all those little churches, go and appoint elders. Or you, you can see... Even uh, in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now that passage even tells you that some of those elders are going to be laymen, and some of those elders are going to have eldering or pastoring as their job. And so that's a normal thing, and that's kind of what we're trying to head toward as a church as well. And you, I, I, could, I could go on with more examples. The church in Jerusalem, when it was founded, um, you see in, in Acts 1 and 2 that they had 12 elders at their founding, which were 12 apostles and 120 church members. That means if you, if you don't count the elder himself, you had one elder for every nine non-elders as they shepherded together. You have, as, uh, as the church started to grow, um, Acts 11, I believe it is, where, where the church is founded in Antioch. It's not founded by an apostle. It's not even founded with a pastor. It's just that Christians went out and preached the gospel, and suddenly there was a church forming in Antioch because people were believing the gospel. And so Barnabas went from Jerusalem to go and to be the pastor of that church. And immediately after he starts pastoring, it's literally the next verse where he leaves them behind for a while and goes off to Tarsus to get a guy named Saul, who we know of as Paul, to come back and to be a fellow elder together with him so that he won't be shepherding by himself. Eventually in that church, by, uh, by the time you get around a few chapters later, I think it's Acts 13, they've already trained up and installed three more elders who are all named, five elders. And two of those elders, Barnabas and Paul, are sent out by the church to be missionaries at that point. So you just see this all over the place. This is just the normative pattern of the New Testament is to have 
multiple elders in a single church. Now, within that, you may say to yourself, well, well that, uh, who, who's going to preach? Well, all the elders ought to be able to preach, but it's pretty normal for there to be one elder who's the main preacher. And why do I say that? It's because you see that in the New Testament. You see that in the beginning, in the early church in Acts, uh, in Jerusalem. Everybody knew who the main preacher was at the church in Jerusalem. It was Peter. And then when Peter went off and was no longer in Jerusalem, there was another guy who stepped up as the main preacher whose name was James, the brother of Jesus. Or even here, uh, as he's called to himself in Acts 20, he's called to himself the elders of the church at Ephesus. This is a church that had multiple elders, and yet everybody kind of knew that the main preacher in Ephesus was Timothy. And Timothy is the one who got these pastoral epistles addressed to him, First and Second Timothy. So it's, it's kind, of, kind of an interesting thing. And this is always going to be the case in churches, even as we appoint elders. It doesn't mean that any guy's vote gets a heavier weight. No guy's vote ought to get a heavier weight than anybody else's among the elders. But if you say, who is the pastor of Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, California, you know what everybody's answer is going to be? Unless they're aware that it's a trick question somehow, it's going to be John MacArthur. Everybody knows he's the guy who gets up and is the main speaker, and yet when he sits down in those elder meetings, his vote is not going to get any greater weight than anybody else's there. So you have here this equality, uh, this parity, you might call it, of elders, even as one is going to be usually the primary spokesman. These elders, these elders of the church of God, as, as they're called, or elders of the church, they have to be qualified. And, and just read you from 1 Timothy 3. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to or desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. One, the, the first qualification that's listed there for somebody to serve as an elder is that they have to want to do it. That, that's, that's what people usually call a call to ministry. Now, a call to ministry can be defined a lot of different ways, and I would submit to you that God has not actually called someone to ministry until a church has recognized them as set apart for ministry. But there does have to be an internal desire, that thing where a lot of people say, hey, I sense that this is what I want to do and this is what God wants me to do. That's a necessary part of it. We can't make somebody an elder under compulsion or not willingly, as 1 Peter 5 says that we can't do. So there has to be a desire. But then he lists other qualifications. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So you see there that there has to be a sanctified desire, and I would submit that that desire has to be tested by the church to make sure that it's not just like a desire to overthrow the people who are in charge right now and take their place. In fact, that kind of desire is listed as a disqualification in, first, in, in Titus chapter 1. Those who are insubordinate are not qualified to be elders according to that chapter. But a sanctified desire is not a desire to say, hey, I, I ought to be in, holding the reins of power here. A sanctified desire is the kind that is saying, I want to be a servant. I want to help serve and shepherd God's sheep. There has to be that sanctified desire. There have to be the necessary gifts. An elder must possess the gift of teaching. This is something that's not required of any other category of Christian. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to be a church member. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to lead your family in devotions. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to be a deacon. But the Bible does say that you must possess the gift of teaching in order to be a shepherd of God's sheep. So that's a necessary gift. There also have to be the necessary graces, which we would just call the qualifications. All, all of those qualifications 
are, are mainly just here is what a Christian ought to look like. Here is, here is how a Christian ought to be living anyway. So, so he ought to be living as a, a, a Christian with integrity. But there are two things in that list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 that are not what are required of every other Christian. One, I already said, is the gift of teaching. The other is he must not be a recent convert. And if you've been wondering, why are they called elders? Does that mean that they have to be old? Well, that's where it's, it's, it, it is uh, clarified. He, he's not talking about being old. He's not talking about take all the elderly people in the church and automatically make them pastors. He's saying they need to be, uh, they need to be mature in their faith. That's the kind of elder that he's speaking of. We know 100% for sure that the Bible is not saying that somebody has to be advanced in age to be an elder. When Paul turns to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, and writing him this letter as a pastor and tells him, let no one look down on you because you are young, but instead set an example for the believers. So they have to be, have to be spiritually mature. They also have to have the providential circumstances. You can't serve as an elder if the circumstances just don't come together in your life for you to be able to show up to meetings, to come to the prayer meeting, to be able to do the things that are necessary to be done, or even maybe God would have you to be an elder somewhere else if the circumstances of your life are, are taking you to some other state or something like that. Um, have we written yet into our Constitution that you're not allowed to move to Florida? We've we got to work on that, all right? But there have to be those providential circumstances, all right? Now, I, I do want to just say some, some practical advantages uh, before we go to, to the instructions that Paul gives to these elders in the church, just some practical advantages that there are for churches to have multiple elders rather than just this guy with two thumbs, right? One is because all the oversight and decision-making power ought not to rest on one man, okay? If you have maybe kind of in the back of your head a feeling like, I don't know if we want to move forward with elders because this Daniel guy just can't be trusted. That's a great reason to appoint some elders. <laughs> All right? Uh, because the way that it's set up with just one elder in a church is an awful lot of decision-making power that rests on one man. A second reason is because the life of the church should not be limited by the strengths and weaknesses of one man. Not just the decisions that a single pastor would make, but the way that the church would be built up or suffer because of the strengths or the weaknesses of just one guy. A third practical thing is because churches that don't have multiple elders typically have people anyway who start to take elder-like roles but may or may not be qualified to do that. It could be the deacons. It could be people on boards. It could be people who just are natural kind of personalities of being leaders and influential. It could be all kinds of stuff. It could be the, oh, it could be the big givers who threaten that they're going to stop giving if the church doesn't do what they say. The sin of simony. Oh, that's ugly. But the problem here comes because those people who would kind of just start naturally filling those leadership gaps, they haven't been set apart by the church to do that. They haven't been recognized by the congregation as qualified and called to do it. And so it's good to follow what the scripture says to say, hey, let's, let's look for those who actually possess the God-given gifts and graces to shepherd us and let's put them into place. And then a fourth practical reason for this is because one man cannot properly care for the souls of everyone in a church of any significant size. It's just going to be the kind of thing where you need more than one shepherd to break it down and to be able to go to the church members and to, to care for those souls. Hebrews 13, 17 says that these leaders of churches are given that responsibility to, to watch over souls. And when there's just one guy doing it, it's, it's pretty difficult. Not impossible. Pretty difficult. So, let's see how, though, if we're going to have shepherds, pastors, elders caring for people's souls, shepherding God's church, how should they be doing it? Well, that's what this whole speech that Paul gives is about. He gives it, first of all, by 
laying out his own example of how he pastored and then giving them some instructions, kind of piggybacking off of that, just explicit instructions. Here is what is supposed to happen. So let's look at starting verse 18, where Paul gives an example of faithful eldership. He says, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So the first thing you see here is that Paul says, I want you to see the example that I set in pastoring of coming to you with love and with humility. He, he says it explicitly. He says, uh, uh, serving the Lord with all humility. Somebody who would, would serve Christ's sheep ought not to be doing it because they're trying to climb some kind of a ladder because they're trying to prove that they're the kind of person who ought to be in that sort of position, or because they are trying to build a platform for themselves, or because they're trying to use the church as a stepping stone to something bigger, or something like that. This needs to be something where those who pastor Christ's church ought to approach with the attitude of Christ, the kind of humility that Jesus had when he came to be our chief shepherd, He expressed that in Matthew 20, where he said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There has to be that humility, and you just see the love that's poured out here, too. This example, he doesn't use the word love, but you see it. He says, from the first day that I set foot, serving the Lord. He has a love for the Lord that's first and foremost. When he's serving these people, The first way that he describes it is that he is serving the Lord. The Lord must be first in all of our hearts, but especially in those that would shepherd Christ's sheep. We have to be serving the Lord and seeing our service of one another as a service to the Lord. Saying to ourselves, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, so you did it to me. So serving with love and humility He says in that love and his humility, he went through tears. He went through trials. If he was just going to say to himself, I'm going to do what makes for a a happy, fulfilled life, this is probably not the path that he would have chosen, except that he knows Christ and the treasure of Christ. And he knows that even with tears and trials and difficulties, that pouring into Christ by pouring into the church is worth it. And that's something that's necessary in those who would be elders of the church. The next thing he says is that these these elders, by his example and by command as well, need to be willing to preach the whole counsel of God. You see in verse 20, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching to you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to go on and skip down to the end of verse 25 as he's talking about all the trials that he had. He says, I have... Uh, oh, no, this is the end of verse 24. Okay. He says, I received the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock as he does this. All right. So so this is this is something that Paul, both by his example and by his command to the Ephesian elders, says, you must not shrink back from declaring the word of God, from declaring anything that is profitable. What's the most profitable thing in the word of God? Well, it's the gospel as we would even lay out the law of God, the rules of God, that they would call us to repentance and to faith and to the grace of Jesus Christ. That's that's why he says that, that he was going around testifying to everybody. He says to Jews and to Greeks, and I think he, he draws that out just because he's, he's kind of reminding them, hey, I had all kinds of trials from what were called the Judaizers the people who insisted that the grace of Jesus was not enough, that there must also be conversion to Judaism and a keeping of the Jewish ceremonial laws in various ways 
in addition to the grace of Jesus. He says, I don't care what people's opinion was. I am going to preach the gospel, the most profitable thing that there is, the gospel of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the gospel of repentance and of faith in Jesus Christ and of the grace that's there. He says, I kept on preaching that. I was preaching the gospel. And here's what you need to do. You need to preach the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. He's saying, if any of you is going to hell, it's not my fault. And why is that? He says, it's because I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, in the whole counsel of God, we're talking about not just this part or that part, not just emphasizing this thing or that thing, but the whole thing. And I want you to to notice here that twice now, he said in verse 20 and in, in verse 27, this idea of shrinking back. You know what that is talking about? It's talking about being cowardly. It's talking about fearing man rather than fearing God. And this is a temptation for every pastor. It is a temptation for every pastor. You may think to yourself, well, how could that be a temptation in a wonderful, God-glorifying church like First Baptist Church of Matawan? Well, I'll tell you. It's because sometimes, as we're going through the whole counsel of God, as we're going verse by verse through Scripture, something comes up where I say to myself, I can picture the faces of people who are going to be looking at me as I say this, who completely disagree and who do not want me to say this. And sometimes sheep bite. Sometimes sheep bite hard. And there is always a temptation on the part of a pastor to say, we are coming up on something where that extremely hard-biting sheep will not like this. Maybe I'll just gloss over it. Paul says, do not shrink back. He says, look at me. I didn't shrink back. I didn't shrink back, and now I'm headed to Jerusalem to be bound up and put in prison because I'm not going to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. So this is something that we need from those who would shepherd God's flock is a determination to preach the whole counsel of God. Not to say, okay, this thing, well, this, this, this doesn't sound like what my, my congregation is going to like, and so I'll just, I'll play up the, you know, I'll play the hits instead. <laughs> but to preach the whole thing. I have to say, in my own experience, um, I think literally the first place that I was tempted to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to First Baptist Church of Matawan was on the subject of elders. Because the the book of Acts was the first book that I preached through when we got here. And the reason that I picked Acts as the first thing is because I said, I want to get us excited about missions and evangelism. And I I, I do hope that it helped us in that a little bit. But you know where you first get to to coming across the issue of elders in a church in the book of Acts? Chapter 1. Chapter 1. And I thought to myself, Can I do this? Guys, this is why I have been preaching to you about our need for multiple elders for literally 10 years. It's because it's all over the word of God. And I'm determined not to shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. I don't know to what degree I've succeeded in that or not. But as we appoint more men who would be elders, even though not all of them are going to be preaching all the time, not all of them are going to possess the same kinds of... Of, of, of gifts and, and the same duties in every way, we need to have men who are determined that we are going to stand not just on the essentials of the word of God, but to proclaim without fear the whole counsel of God. We need that for our own souls, the whole counsel of God. Another set of instructions that he gives starts in verse 28. The first thing he says is that they are to pay careful attention to themselves. Verse 28. I flipped the page. There we go. All right. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, is a pastor supposed to be introspective about his own soul? Yes. 
The Bible says that for every Christian that we ought to examine ourselves. It doesn't mean don't do anything but examine yourself, but there has to be self-examination. However, I'm going to tell you that that's not what this verse is about. This verse is about the fact that pastors need to be pastored. It says here, pay careful attention to yourselves. This is a plural instruction with, with plural subject and plural object. Pay careful attention to yourselves. That means a pastor needs to have fellow elders who are paying careful attention to him. Do you hear that? A pastor needs to have fellow elders who are paying careful attention to him. And those fellow elders need their fellow elders to be paying careful attention to them. I put this in an email that I sent out to you like a year and a half ago, and then I resent it this Friday. But do you, do you have any idea, as a solo elder of the church, do you have any idea how easy it would be for me to hide serious sin? It would be so easy. And it would be to the detriment of every single one of you. I shouldn't have that option. And the only way that that's going to get fixed is by the instructions of Scripture. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Part of what I'm telling you is that I need to be pastored. And you need me to be pastored. And where there have been solo elders who haven't fallen into serious sin, praise God. Praise God. But we need to keep watch over our souls. And when he says keep watch over yourselves, he's not just talking about serious sin. He's also talking about things like heresy. Where a solo pastor could just one day change his mind and say, well, I think Jesus was made. Not just begotten, but made. And start teaching Arianism or something like that and leading the church down a path that's not the gospel at all. And there needs to be those who are right there, right away, not just eventually the church down the road after things have fallen apart, taking a vote on whether or not this guy can stay, but right there immediately to be able to say, hey, we're not going to let you go down this road. We are going to shepherd you, pastor, in the right direction. Only way that this command can be followed, pay careful attention to yourselves, is if there are multiple elders within the church. But he says, not only pay careful attention to yourselves, but also to all the flock. The whole flock of God needs to be shepherded. The whole flock of God, the way that he describes this flock of God, is those whom God has obtained with his own blood to oversee and to shepherd this flock. When he says God has obtained it with his own blood, he's, he's, the idea there is, hey, Jesus is God. And he died for our sins. And the reason the church exists is because he died specifically for the sins of these people that he loves and cares about. And he's saying to these elders of the church, you need to look at each and every one of these sheep, regardless of whether there's somebody that you, in just your personality, that you mesh really well with, or, or maybe there's sheep that bites really hard, or whatever it is, but to be able to look at this flock of God and say, that person is a member of this church because Jesus shed his blood for her. Jesus shed his blood for him. And I am determined to love and to care for these souls because of what Christ, my great chief shepherd, has done. That's what he's saying. He says to oversee. Overseeing has to do not just with, with looking after individuals, but with, with caring for the affairs of the church and the way that the programs would go and all those kinds of things. And that's that's entrusted there to the elders. But he says, shepherd the church of God. Another instruction that's here is that, that elders are to watch out for wolves. He says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You know what these are? These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And where do they come from? Well, it says that they can come in from somewhere else. They can just show up and have a great smile and quote some theology books and all kinds of stuff like that. But it says, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. This is another great reason why there needs to be a plurality of elders. Shouldn't have just one man who can suddenly start speaking twisted things. And there's nobody there to do anything about it. He's saying to draw the disciples after them. 
Now, this is not just the responsibility of elders. This is the responsibility of the whole church. This is given to entire churches together to, to watch after their affairs. If you want to know where, a great example is the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The, the churches are to watch out for their own affairs and not to go after false teachings. We all ought to be on the lookout for this, that there can be those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not going to come in as wolves in wolves' clothing. If somebody came in today screaming and swearing and saying, Christians, you all need to start eating babies for breakfast, nobody's going to say, oh, let's follow that guy. What is it where he says that there are going to be those who would draw away the disciples after themselves? It means that there are going to be those who come in looking for what appeals to Christians. What appeals to these people in the pew? And how can I manipulate that to my own advantage? How can I teach what is false in order to draw people away after myself? There's lots of motivations that are listed for this throughout the scriptures. The, the, uh, there's several books of the New Testament that have pretty thorough discussions of false teachers and their motivations and what those look like. You might look at the book of Jude or the book of 2 Peter or 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus, which, which all address these a lot. But I, one time I actually went through and I, I counted up within those books that I just listed, what are the different motivations that are given for false teaching throughout these letters? And there were several, but the three that stood out that were listed over and over and over were these three. And you've probably heard these together. Sex, money, and power. Power with the example of, of like... Titus 1, those who are insubordinate, who are seeking the office of elder, just want to overthrow somebody so that they can be in charge. Money, boy, you, you want to know why, why do people go into positions of religious leadership with money in mind? Well, you can see that all over the place if you turn on your TV, can't you? Or sex. I say that, and you say, well, what, what, what in the world are the benefits to a pastor regarding that? Well, it's because he could twist everything to say, this set of things that you've always heard from your grandma was wrong. Well, we have freedom in Christ now. And you see all the time these cults where the leader will gather a harem around themselves. Don't you see that? And, and these motivations can be ugly, ugly things, but what we are to watch out for and what the elders are to be chiefs in watching out for is where will there be this smooth talk that would lead people off down false paths for sinful motivations? So watch out for that, he says. Another duty is to admonish with tears. Admonish with tears. He says in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The word admonish isn't some, it's not a word that we usually use in in uh, every day, uh, what it means is telling somebody what they're doing wrong. Now, there are some who think, this is awesome. I get to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Uh, it got, if somebody's motivation to be an elder is, boy, I suddenly get to be the one who criticizes everybody's lives, that's a pretty terrible motivation. It ought not to bring us joy because it says instead to admonish everyone with tears. But this is something that if you have children, you know that this is a necessary part of directing somebody in a way that's right. It's not just telling them positively the way that they need to go, but also directing them and saying, hey, that weird thing that you thought of to do that I never thought of until this moment that I see you doing is not the right way to go. And so there has to be a willingness on the part of elders to, with love and with tears, not with joy, but with tears, to approach people and to say, Hey, because I love you, I want to tell you that, that I think you're off course here. And let's see what we can do better as Christ's sheep. Another thing that elders are told to do in verse 32 is to be satisfied in God and to be satisfied in the word of his grace. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Those who would lead Christ's church need to love God. They, they need to look to God, to be commended to God, 
to be commended to his word, the grace that they would receive in his word, and to treasure God, and to say, God himself is my inheritance. You know, one of the things that, that, that is normal when somebody goes into pastoral ministry, and I'll especially say that this is for those who would not just be lay elders where you have a regular full-time corporate job or whatever, and you're also serving as an elder. Uh, this is like if, if you're in the position of saying, maybe I need to devote my life to serving Christ's sheep as a full-time vocational pastor. One of the things that comes with that is that over time you see those people who were right there on the same financial level with you when you're 20, now suddenly when you're 40, they're kind of like way up there, and you're way down here. And somebody who is willing to serve Christ's sheep faithfully needs to be somebody who's going to say, this is worth it, because God is worth it. God's grace is enough. He, he, he warns in the next verses toward the end not to do it for shameful gain, not to say, boy, uh, the people aren't giving enough, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change what I'm teaching so that my salary can increase. <laughs> and no, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And by the week here, he's talking about those who are offended by the idea that a pastor might make a decent living. That's what he means. And he says, and we must remember these words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'll just summarize that by saying, a pastor cannot be somebody who's in love with money. An elder of a church needs to be somebody who is willing to serve whether he's going to be compensated for it or not, whether he's going to be properly compensated for it or not. Now, I will say, if you guys stop paying me, I'm not going to be able to do quite as much as far as church ministry as I would before. I'm going to have to drive a lot of Uber if you stop paying me. But an elder needs to be somebody who is determined, I am going to give. I'm not in this to receive I am here to preach the gospel of the grace of God. That's whether they're paid or unpaid, whether the church cares for them properly or not. It says in 1 Peter 5, 2, this instruction, instruction to the elders there that Peter is talking about. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I want to I just go, actually, to 1 Peter 5 as we, as we conclude. I want to read you the whole thing that it says there, these instructions to elders there. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, meaning not being the kind of guy who stands up and says, I am the anointed of the Lord, you must obey me or it's going to come back on you. But instead, by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, this is what I want you to hear, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't think that passage is saying that the unfading crown of glory is only for pastors. I think he's saying, look, all of you Christians, as you are shepherded by Jesus Christ, we have the unfading crown of glory coming to us as we're going to see him face to face for all eternity. But look, elders, pastors, as you get yourself into this thing where you didn't know what you were getting yourself into, but you can find out, it's worth it. Because there is the unfading crown of glory in Christ ahead that the chief shepherd gives. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. By which he means, look at you who are, are, are under the leadership of these elders. Look to these spiritually mature men who have been set apart by the church to this office to lead you. Be subject to them and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I've tried to speak the gospel in this sermon some. I want to do it again. You, human being, not just you, Christian, you, human being, need to be under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He already is your creator. He already is Lord. He already is the one who has the say over your eternity. You need to come into his light. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in him as your savior. You need to receive his grace. You need to submit to him as your Lord. And he will receive you and he will shepherd you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, keep on putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Let him shepherd your soul. Search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Let Jesus the shepherd speak and let you his sheep hear his voice and follow him. And pray that God would give us at First Baptist Church of Matawan more under shepherds for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for laying out for us in the scripture everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Thank you for directing us in our faith and directing us in our practice. And Lord, we pray that you'd bless us in the ways that Paul instructed, the Holy Spirit instructed through Paul in Acts chapter 20. Father, we pray that you would uh, grant us a spirit of love for you and love for one another, even uh, as we discuss these things. But God, we, we thank you that Jesus the chief shepherd will appear again, giving us the unfading crown of glory. Lord, let everybody here be among those who would receive that unfading crown of glory, that eternal life of knowing you. God, grant us repentance, grant us faith, and grant those both to grow. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.